Today here with me is Tanay Tandon. Tanay is the founder of Athelus. Analyzing a person's blood and the cells within it is often used to diagnose many health conditions and illnesses, from infections to leukemia and bone marrow disorders. Generally, it's a long and expensive process. You have to go to the doctor, have a sample taken, wait for a couple days, for a trained professional to then analyze the blood and finally get your diagnosis. Thales is using machine learning to dramatically improve the speed and efficiency of testing blood cells. From a simple finger prick's worth of blood, Athelas devices can monitor and help healthcare professionals to remotely care for patients. Today, over 30,000 people have used Athelas devices to monitor a range of conditions, including hypertension and diabetes. I'm really excited to have you here with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to, to chat through Athelas and just the, the, some of the work that we've been doing in, in the area. Well, it's really exciting to have you on. Now, I think it's really exciting to try to take this on. Now, healthcare is a pretty big space. I mean, there's a lot to be done. Can you say a bit more about specifically why you decided to look at blood and, and specifically the things you're doing at Athelas? I mean, you started this many years ago. What inspired you to go for specifically what you're going after right now? It's an interesting story. So my co-founder and I, we would compete in high school science fairs against each other. And in the Bay Area, science fairs are very competitive. People are working on very interesting projects that are well beyond my comprehension even today. And her work was in imaging, molecular imaging in particular, and trying to look at the early signals of cancer. And, and my work was building very simple natural language processing models, or in some cases, computer vision models to do basic tasks. Like one year, I built a, a summarization engine. And Another year, I worked on a on a simple tool that could classify malaria cells that actually ended up being the precursor for Athelis. But I think the reason that we started this together and the reason that we, we started the company and were inspired to keep going uh, is when you look at healthcare as an industry in particular, something like 60 to 70% of the costs are in labor and are actually in the services component of healthcare. So when you get a blood test, you know, I was shocked to find out that literally all the costs of that, like the reagents to run the test cost a couple of pennies, the time on the system cost a couple of pennies, and then the time of the operator that's pre-processing the blood and then in some cases analyzing it under a microscope and manually labeling cells or writing things down, that's like the $80 that you're paying for that blood test. And you find this when you just read about healthcare, you see this again and again. Pharmaceuticals, I think politicians, not to get too political, politicians will talk about the pharma industry all day and night, but pharma drug spend is 8% of healthcare spend, whereas physician time and nurse time is something like 80%. When you think about where the dollars are going, it becomes very clear that, okay, well, we want to tackle problems where we can augment a single physician or a single nurse and make him or her more powerful in order to scale to more patients at the same time. And the way to do that is technology. We started at this corner of, the goal was always to build a lot more types of tests and a lot more types of sensors and take on more and more of the market. But we wanted to start with something that we knew we could build. It was technologically possible and also was a, hit a large enough chunk of the market. So uh, the CBC, complete blood count, is where we started. It's the most commonly ordered blood test in America. Uh, like you mentioned, it, it can help 
detect anything from an infection all the way to leukemia. It really is considered that first wall of a diagnostic. And Deepka, who is way more familiar with healthcare, Deepka is my co-founder, has worked in a lab for years, if not a decade plus at this point of time, you know, really identified this as the test to go after because of the just the breadth of conditions it could, it could help solve. And also the fact that she'd seen how it was run in a lab where it was an automated cell counter, sometimes using light impedance to track each cell in a large $100,000 system combined with a pathologist sitting on a microscope. And both of those things seemed like things we could automate with computer vision and, and some basic microfluidics. So we just started running at that problem more out of curiosity to see if we could build it rather than actually having identified a good market and a good business model yet, which is probably the wrong way to start a company. But we eventually iterated our way into something that now serves a lot of patients and, and, is, and is quite useful. One of the things when I was kind of browsing through some of your recent activities that I saw on Twitter was this interesting welcome package that your company is using now. And can you say a little bit more about what that's all about? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the really exciting things about working at a healthcare business and working on healthcare problems as engineers, as salespeople, as operations people, is that there's this broader mission that is very tangible. Uh, I mean, you look at healthcare as an industry, it's the number one reason for personal bankruptcy in America. We spend $4 trillion a year on it. It's one of the largest drains on the economy. In, in my opinion, I think in the opinions of a lot of people, there's about three things in the American economy that if you fixed, it would completely change the way that people, I mean, the average middle-class American would start living like royalty. And in my opinion, that's healthcare, which is a black hole of wealth often. And you know, it, it, if you go to a hospital once, suddenly there's this $40,000 bill. Also education, you look at the student loan crisis, you look at the cost it takes to just get you know standard education in America. And then real estate, I think that the cost of rent and the cost of actually living in a place, just the basic action of existing is so expensive in America. And I, and I think that we're at Athelos hopefully taking on, on that first problem of healthcare, which is how can we make healthcare lower cost and how can we use technology to go make that happen? And so in our welcome packet, there's just a really short note that the leadership team and I wrote that we put into every box along with the, the sweatshirt and the jacket that we give people. There's that note that just talks about, hey, like you're about to start working on this problem of making healthcare more preventative and, and solving healthcare in America. And I think it does get people excited and it gets me excited to think about that as a mission that we're growing a team around every day. I'd love to dive more into all the patients you're serving. But before we do that, I'd like to go a little deeper into exactly what you're doing there. So CBC, complete blood count. What exactly is the result of such a test? What does it have to do? And how are you able to do it so much cheaper than the previous machinery? The tests that we offer today, white blood cell, neutrophil counts, along with blast cell detection, and we also detect a ton of other types of white blood cells, platelet clumps, et cetera. So a, a good chunk of the CBC. What's launching, I think this quarter, will be platelets and hemoglobin, which round out the rest of the CBC. I mean, what, what you can do with this test essentially is it, it tells you the number of white blood cells in your bloodstream and the types of white blood cells in your bloodstream. And why this is really useful is, let's take an example of a patient that's on chemotherapy during cancer. When they are receiving chemo, 
they are receiving a cytotoxic chemical that's essentially, it, it means a drug agent that is killing a lot of the fast growing cells in your body, which include tumor cells, but also include some really important cells like neutrophils, which are a type of white blood cell that's an infection fighter. And as a result, these patients become immunocompromised. They can get an infection that might kill them. They can get an infection that might put them in the hospital. And so measuring and tracking that neutrophil count is really important in those populations. Similarly, if there's a patient that has a high propensity for internal bleeding or post-operative after a surgery, you want to make sure that there's you know no massive inflammatory process that's going on. You want to see a good recovery. Well, then you'd want to be measuring platelets and hemoglobin and also white blood cells on an ongoing basis. The test really, you know, what we've done is we have a microfluidic test strip cartridge. So with the small volume of blood, a, a drop, we create a monolayer of cells. So that's a layer, it's single cell thick. And then that test strip, it's a consumable, is inserted into our device, which is about the size of an Amazon Alexa. And we then take hundreds of images of that and classify them using convolutional neural nets that first segment where all the cells are and then classify the types of cells that are present. So like a pretty standard RCNN that took a lot of time to train and figure out how to optimize. But the at its core, the model itself is not something fairly complex. After that, we have a count. So, hey, these many cells per microliter of this type, and then percentages of the different types of white blood cells and platelets and hemoglobin. Uh, and then from that, I mean, a physician or a nurse or any clinician really can take that number and make a determination as to hey, this patient's counts are really low, let's give uh, him or her a prophylactic antibiotic, which is a precautionary antibiotic because there's a good chance they might catch an infection. And previously, this process would you know, be like a three-day turnaround. You would go into the lab, you would get your test result, you'd wait, the results would come back, your doctor would call you, then you'd have to call back in or something or go into some portal. In our case, it's two minutes, it's right there, you take the finger prick, the result happens in front of you. And, and I think number one and why it's cheaper is there's the intelligence aspect of it has been completely automated with computer vision. And then number two, we've used off-the-shelf hardware and really simple hardware tools to essentially take what used to be this big $100,000 piece of equipment in a, in a flow cytometer and then use software to instead supercharge it to use it essentially with a simple optical microscope to classify those cells. I'd say what we've done is, is we've drastically simplified the physical components. You know, a flow cytometer might have something like 400, 500 parts in it. Our system has like four and uh, instead made up for all of the lack and complexity in, in the light-based impedance and the, the tubing and all those things that go on in a flow cytometer with software and just trained that intelligence into a computer vision model. Uh, and so that's our core device, the Atalus One. And then along with that, we've since expanded and we have a suite of other tools for blood pressure monitoring, for detecting hypertension and weighing scales and glucometers. And we've built simple sensors for hardware, for, for pill tracking, medication adherence. And so our belief is, is that with these suite of sensors, we can start getting a better picture of a patient's health and preventatively monitor them and then use simple machine learning models to spot trends or detect blood cells or whatever it may be to, again, augment the intelligence of a physician or nurse. So, Tanel, I love how you're describing this because if I heard it correctly, it means instead of having blood drawn, I just do a little prick in my finger and then I swipe the blood into your device and it takes care of everything else. And can I do this as many times as I want? Is it costly to run the device or can I run it, you know, any day? Just once I have the device, it's pretty much free to run. Yeah, exactly. I mean, each test strip costs, you know, us about a dollar to make and manufacture. But other than that, it's all software. And so we've drastically, I think, increased the frequency at which you can run this test as well, which is 
Like you're saying, currently you have to go in and get a blood draw. And so it's a pretty big deal for immunocompromised populations in that sense. It seems like it not just changes that you can do things more easily, it'll change how often you're willing to, to do tests. I mean, getting things scheduled is always a real pain and now you just do it on your own time. That's amazing. Now, one thing I'm curious about on the AI side of things, you're saying computer vision is used to look at effectively a drip of blood. Somehow images are taken of that blood drip and computer vision makes sense of it. Now, most machine learning these days, maybe yours too, will require labeled data to be able to actually later do the thing on its own. So where do you get your labeled data from? What's the ground truth for the systems you train? So when we first started, the I, I'm a big believer in first try to do the thing without machine learning and then, you know, tag, when, when you actually need to use it and you figure out what the hard parts of the problem are that need a ton of data, then hone in on those. And so when we first started, I mean, we were able to use pretty standard image processing techniques like around, I think we were doing like Otsu transformations and just like edge detection to like classify where the cells were and segment them out. And then like to count each cell has nuclei in it. And based on the shape and sizes of the nuclei, you can classify the exact type of cell, whether it's a neutrophil, which is an infection fighter or a lymphocyte etc. And even for that, we were doing basic edge detection and simple transformations and then counting the number of nuclei. And that worked really well in a simple controlled environment. Now, the second you start having these edge cases in the data where, you know, the cells might be of a slightly different shape or a slightly different size or the lighting in the ambient lighting is a little different. Suddenly that starts breaking down. And that's where the neural nets that we have to train have to be so robust to all of these perturbations and edge cases in, in the different cell types. And so what we did is, is that we worked with pathologists between Stanford. Uh, we worked with pathologists on contract from a bunch of different institutions and we created our own label data set of hundreds of thousands of these cells. And then obviously use the usual tricks of image augmentation and whatnot to really multiply that data set. And it, it would work particularly well for cells because often the transformation you're looking for is a is a simple rotation or a simple, you know, uh, the, the cell is slightly morphed in one direction because of how it's, you know, appeared in the image. And so with a couple, I'd say like 20 to 30 pathologists and ourselves also working on the data, we sort of created this massive data set and then we're able to train the neural nets on it. I'd say one really important thing is, is actually making sure that the, for example, if we just use a training set from someone, you know, looking at these cells on a microscope, there would be some inherent differences than the images collected on our device, which has resolution differences and lighting differences. And so the training set had to be built on the devices that are going to be, you know, actually used. And so the exact lighting, the exact imaging and the exact resolution. And so that was a challenge, but it took us over the course of a year, we sort of built this production grade computer vision model and also this production grade data pipeline to go from blood to label data with pathologists. And I think early on in a computer vision or just machine learning startup, having production grade data pipelines and production grade labeling pipelines is equally, if not more important than the model itself. And so that, that, that's something that, you know, we, we learned the hard way, but we got through after a bunch of iterations. These days, one of the things that's often in the news is how some machine learning systems might work well on some subset of a population, but not on other people. For example, face recognition systems were notorious to be less accurate for black people than white people. And so I'm curious, in blood, is there any such concerns? Like, is it possible that some populations have different types of blood cells, in, at least in the way they visually appear, that would 
could make it escape the accuracy that you generally achieve? 100%. For example, African-American populations will have a higher propensity for sickle cell anemia. It's genetically a condition that's far more prevalent in African-American populations than others. It's something that the, you know, hats off to the FDA because in the review process with the FDA, these are the things they really hone in on, which is they want to see, you know, samples from a wide range of demographics. They want to make sure that you're both your training sets as well as, you know, more importantly, when you're actually testing the system and, and, you know, validating it, you're running it across patients with a wide range of diseases, with a wide range of ethnic backgrounds and age and all those things. And the other pieces that they really look for is certain rare diseases that might impact the way blood looks and the way blood cells look. I mean, when you're in the process, it's honestly quite annoying because they'll mention some rare disease with which There are 20,000 people in the world that have it, and now you have to go find 100 samples and make sure your model is able to perform on it. And so whenever you get that response and the FDA will, will say, hey, we need a patient with this genetic disorder and like this blood disorder, it's a pain because you're, you have to go hunt that down and, and work with labs and work with the clinical facilities to find samples matching that background. But it's really good from a public health standpoint because it actually ensures that your system is, is robust to these edge cases. And I think for us, and I think in general for, you know, as technology companies enter healthcare, that's one of the, the most important things is really ensuring that the models that we build and, and the models that we validate are, are robust to the full gamut of the population that they're going to be serving. So, yeah, that definitely something we had to work on in a big way. Well, that's really impressive what, what you're doing there. And actually, I'm also really impressed that FDA, a government uh, organization, actually gets it right and you know, understands how a machine learning system or other systems also, of course, need to be tested across a wide range of populations to be able to uh, achieve the desired outcome. Now, one of the other things that, of course, comes up a lot these days, especially with the Theranos trial happening, is, well, Wondering, what, what's the difference, right? I mean, Theranos was a company that promised from a little blood prick, you know, little prick, you can get everything tested. And here you are actually delivering something similar, but somehow what they were claiming wasn't right and your thing works. So what's the difference here? Can you say a little bit about what's the difference between Athelos and Theranos in terms of what Athelos provides and Theranos was trying to provide, but it's maybe just too hard to do for now. Yeah, definitely. So I think number one is the test that we've worked on and cleared by the FDA is a very specific test. It, it's not 30 blood tests. It's not 100 blood tests from a drop of blood. It really is. It's, it's one or two core blood tests that are very important and highly utilized. And so step one, I think, The fact that we're really focused on this one test, uh, the CBC, uh, is distinguishing. And then number two is is really the focus on strong clinical review, FDA trials, working with you know peer review in, with institutions that that publish and undergo peer review, and really just honing in on the data. All of our data on the device's performance is available online. The way the device works, we're talking about it right now, it's just super public. I think there's a lot of people that when they're building technology, there's an attempt to obfuscate or an attempt to make it seem more complex than it really is. But I think the beauty of what we're working on is that it is simple and it is actually fairly easy to understand, which is, you know, you take blood, you create a monolayer of it, and then you count the cells. And I'd say the most, one of the more important parts is that this is the way that blood has been analyzed for decades, if not centuries, which is... You look at it under a slide, under a microscope, and then you count the different types of cells. 
all we're doing is we're automating the intelligence portion of that. When you look at like the risk factors associated with this, this specific type of test, it all comes down to, well, can you accurately uh, detect the various you know, cell types that are present and can you automate something that humans are already very good at, which I actually think is, is a great example of a problem that machine learning can solve. And at this point of time, I think many industries have shown can solve fairly well. And then finally, I'll say like just on a cultural standpoint, like one of our big goals was, like I mentioned, data transparency. We work with the FDA from the earliest stages. We meet with them a couple times a year or have conversations with them at least a couple times a year. It's super important to us that our interactions with the broader clinical community are, are, are one of we want to work with them and we want to make sure that the when the FDA asks for a trial, I don't think we pushed back once. We would run the trial. We would collect the data. We would show that it works. If there were performance limitations in the labeling, in the conversations with the FDA, those are made transparent and very clear. And so I think just focusing on the science and focusing on, on the data is one of the ways that we've tried to differentiate ourselves. And also scoping the problem to something that scientifically can actually be done because humans do it every single day today. Well, tonight now your system is fascinating. It works. If I'm somebody who wants to start using your system, your devices, where do I start? So we today, the system itself is um, indicated for prescription use only at the guidance of a clinician. So we work with specific chronic disease populations that really need this type of monitoring at a high, on a high frequency basis. One example is, is there's a refractory schizophrenia drug called clozapine. It's used to treat schizophrenia and it's very effective, but it has a certain side effect by which in a certain percentage of patients, you do actually see a drop in neutrophil count and in ANC count, which makes them more at risk for developing an infection. And so this is a population that our device has been incredible for because until today, in order to receive the medication, each patient needed to get a venous blood draw once a week. And with our system, it has transformed that into a finger prick. And doing a finger prick once a week is way different than, you know, doing a venous blood draw once a week just from a logistics and operational standpoint. So it truly has been life-changing for a lot of those patients. We talked a little bit about oncology, you know, with chemotherapy and cancer care. Today, we're really honed in on delivering great care to those populations. I think the end goal in maybe, you know, a year or two years is for us to have enough tests and enough, you know, enough ready to go analytics in the device that it's useful for a general consumer. And it's something that you can go buy online and, and have at home. And it's a prescriber or physician connected device where after a result, a quick consult to parse the results and ensure that you're understanding them correctly is in place. And that's the goal we're working towards is how much of healthcare can we transition into the, into the home and how much of healthcare can we make preventative? And if we can start bringing large pieces of that, I think we'll start bending the cost curve and really drastically reducing costs in the US healthcare system. So today as a patient, you would have to get prescribed by a physician, have a specific condition that that physician prescribed it for, and then get up and running on, on the system. And, and hopefully in the near future, it's something that anyone can just order online. So I like the, the example you gave on schizophrenia and the clozapine drug and, and now not needing to go in for a weekly blood draw, just a prick at home and that takes care of it. And also actually re read a story on your blog, which was a great story. I recommend people check out about a patient who, whose life was transformed by this, right? I'm curious, are there other diseases aside from schizophrenia where currently Athelas devices are widely used? 
Yeah, definitely. I and mean, we have hundreds of, of cancer patients today who use the system in their home while they're on treatment in order to measure for immunosuppression and, and dose adjust. In autoimmune populations, if it's a patient that's, say, has rheumatoid arthritis or some other condition that needs a infusion, that's a population that we serve in a big way. So in, in autoimmune populations, you have inflammation is, is the underlying you know, condition and you're receiving drugs that are immunosuppressive. So it's similar you know, to the clozapine use case in some ways that as you're getting these infusions, you want to be tracking your white blood cell counts for two reasons. Number one, you want to make sure that they never go too low because of a risk for infection. But number two, you also want to use it to track the progression of the inflammatory response. When there's an inflammatory response in your body, a couple metrics go up. There's a ratio called the NLR, which is neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, which is a strong marker for inflammation and something we can measure, or the total number of white blood cells. That's something that's really useful in autoimmune populations. There's one story that I don't think is listed on our website, but probably the most important story for in, in the inception of the company is when we detected leukemia in a patient in our very first clinical trial. Leukemia is a liquid tumor. It essentially manifests as a massive proliferation of white blood cells and, you know, immature blood cells in the bloodstream, often stems from an underlying bone marrow disorder. I remember this was the first time we had ever used the device in a clinical setting. We were just trying to collect data. It was right towards the end of Y Combinator. Our goal for the summer at YC was to have a, a system that was functional and passing a basic validation trial. And during the trial, Deepika, my co-founder, was the one that was pricking every patient. And I was sitting in this back room running the tests and running the samples. And one patient came by and she, I remember I got the sample, I ran it, and immediately it was something like 40,000 white blood cells per microliter that the system classified. And the cells were also very large, which I mean, it was detecting blast cells, uh, which are immature cell types. We saw that and immediately I, was, I knew this was leukemia. Obviously, our system wasn't FDA cleared at the time, so I couldn't go tell the patient. I'm not a clinician. So we let the nurses know and they followed up. And three weeks later, the patient was confirmed to have leukemia. This was one of those mind-blowing kind of moments where we were like, okay, we built this thing. There's a Raspberry Pi and wires. Everything's dangling out of it. It barely works. You have to like hold it together. But it detected leukemia. And that too, it detected leukemia after a patient had visited her doctor, had had a you know, consultation, but the diagnosis had gotten missed because today healthcare system is, is not particularly quantitative. You'll analyze someone symptomatically, you'll tell them to go home and get rest, which is what she was told. And then if the issue progresses further symptomatically, then you'll actually stage some sort of an intervention. And when we detected that, I, I mean, I remember on the flight back home, Deepak and I were talking and we were like, that was the moment we decided to take a leave of absence from school and go full-time on this because it became very, very clear that there was a massive market here. We may not have figured out exactly how to you know, nail the business side yet, but healthcare wasn't preventative. And the fact that it took us to detect something as severe as leukemia, I think, was telling in the fact that the system needed more preventative technology and more ongoing monitoring technology. So yeah, leukemia is, is another example of a condition that can be detected and monitored using our device and is used for that today. And I'm curious, do you ever see the full story? So somebody gets diagnosed, but your device can be used to also monitor them. And you could hopefully see that your device is also helping them recover and, and so forth. Do you ever see that or are you far removed from the recovery stories? We definitely hear stories of you know patients. Usually we're not involved in the detection pathway today. So those are more one-offs because our system is deployed more for ongoing chronic care where the patient has already been diagnosed. But we do hear incredible recovery stories where a patient 
will use the device over the course of several months during their chemo or during their treatment or on clozapine. They use it every single week and then the patient gets better and better. And, and that's, I mean, honestly, the most exciting thing where, you know, you see patients, for example, schizophrenia patients who, you know, a few months ago, just I like on the streets in some cases and then over the course of their treatment with this medication can now even hold basic jobs have living security have their basic needs met they have a clinician and a caregiver who's taking care of them and they're receiving their you know weekly blood tests through Othellus and, and one of the things that we've seen now in across the thousands of patients that we serve is when you introduce you know Othellus into in, for monitoring you have a 60% boost in the utilization and adherence to clozapine so it actually makes sure that because it's way easier to take a finger prick than a venous blood draw. And so it's nice to see those cases where we actively help the patient stay on the medication and continue to use the medication and benefit from it and then see that recovery curve for them. Now, this is where you're at today. You started this several years ago. And in fact, as I understand it, you, well, you started a company at age 15 called Clipped. And then at age 17, I think, you started Athelus. Most people are still in high school, trying to get ready for college, things like that. What happened there? How, how did you start a company at age 15 and then the next one at age 17? Can you say a little more about your background there? Yeah, definitely. I would say that number one, I'm super lucky to, to live in an area and, and a time where there's like you can just work on these types of things and so many like you, the fact that you can go on GitHub and, and start, you know, I remember installing NLTK or whatever, yeah, the natural language processing toolkit was and being able to do like some pretty interesting things in a couple of hours. And so the clip was one of the first apps that I built. And the whole idea was we can use very basic techniques around named entity recognition and that makes sense, like sentiment analysis, off the shelf libraries, really, I was not training things of my own at the time, but to start to select sentences and paragraphs that are core or summative to the overall article. And so I built this extractive summarization model where it would pull out little infographics or it would pull out sentences that were core and you could get a gist ideally of the article in a couple quick seconds as opposed to reading the whole thing. And I remember I, I would use it when preparing for debate cases because we would actually, they did high school debate. And so it was a quick way to like pull out the core numbers. And there was like simple pattern matching you could do like number and then like the prepositional phrase that comes after it and then like pull that phrase and then you can get like 50% of patients have this issue and like and it was a fast way to consume information and quite personally useful and at the time actually I was really fortunate because I remember I reached I was looking for a summer internship and I reached out to a bunch of uh, folks at, at Stanford and the AI lab and sent them this early thing that I was trying to work on and I got one response or I think it was one or two responses but my one response was from Richard Socher who said okay cool you can come intern here for the summer and he gave me like a, a task to work on I think I bungled it like I did not do a good job on it at all but he still gave me a gave me a shot and so I was really fortunate he took an early bet on on me when I was still in high school and I learned so much that summer just absorbing just the work of very intelligent people in that lab and eventually that work turned into MetaMind which was his company I had a chance to intern there as well and learned a ton and made a ton of mistakes in the process of trying to work on production-grade machine learning systems. And then I think while I was there, or a couple months after my internship ended, I uh, decided that there was this really interesting problem in you know applying these computer vision models to things beyond self-driving cars or beyond facial recognition, but healthcare. 
and that's when my co-founder and I would talk about it and we sort of kick things off. We left school when I was in right after freshman year, right at the beginning of sophomore year. But I'd been working on some of the research ideas in high school as well. It only really came together as a company, I'd say, in the last like three years or so. Until then, we were still figuring things out. Where did you meet your co-founder? We grew up in the same area around here. And while I was interning at the AI lab under Richard, she was working at the multimodality imaging lab, which is like just across the street at Stanford. And and so her, her work was in molecular imaging. And I knew her from science fair projects. Like we would compete in science fairs in, in high school. And so I was super familiar with you know her work. We became good friends. And then when it came time to start something, honestly, the ideas around Athalus were like the perfect confluence of her research in imaging and what I was interested in with machine learning. And so it, it seemed like a very natural natural progression to try to build this thing together. Yeah, join forces with your biggest competitor from the science fair. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Now, it still must have been a bit of a conversation though, because I mean, normally people go to college for four years and sounds like you decided after a year, this is the moment to start a company. I mean, you must have had conversations with your co-founder, with your parents, I mean, what was the dynamic around that? Yeah, I mean, it was a it was an interesting. I think number one, Stanford makes it very easy to come back, and so that was the core of my pitch was like, hey, there's this opportunity here. Like, we're doing Y Combinator this summer. Sequoia just offered us, you know, a seed round, and I think I have to take. I just have to go for the shot, you know, take my shot here and, and really spend a couple months and dig into this and see what it can become. I would say that really the conversation came down to. This is an important problem to work on. And number two, I, I think we have a shot at actually building something here. Uh, and number three, if, if everything just doesn't work out, then I can always go back to Stanford. They're very accepting of, of returning years down the road. And so that that was helpful. It was still a difficult conversation because the path that I think that we took was just very different. And all of our friends were in school. It was honestly, there were days when it was kind of like, what are we doing? And especially when you get stuck working on it during a clinical trial or during a bench trial. But I think what made it all easier is just the initial couple hires that we brought onto the team were just incredible people that were much smarter than us and much more mature and, and just did an incredible job of taking this from a hack together science project or idea into a, into a real company. And so we're super fortunate that we got some of those incredible early founding engineers around the table and many of whom still work with us today. And our, Drew is now the CTO at Athelis. And so he's he, he leads the entire engineering team. And so, yeah, just I think it all somehow clicked in, in, in some of those early pieces and still a lot to figure out. But I'm glad that we took the time off from school to go do it. It's also my understanding at the time you were the youngest one going through Y Combinator. How was that experience? Yeah, I think there, there were my batch at Y Combinator. There were a couple folks that were around like like freshmen, freshmen in college, a freshman or sophomore in college. And so it was cool because I think YC is such a great environment for that kind of energy where you're in that figuring it out stage. And for like Alex, the co-founder of Scale AI was in our batch and they're a massive company now and doing incredible work in, in machine learning. And when they started, they were working on something very different and, and mid-batch YC, it, it pivoted into the incredible business that Scale is today. And a lot of the friends that we made during that batch were super close with and so really lucky to, to have been working with, with such smart people. I'd also say that going through YC at that point of time, it was so important for the business because it paced us. When you're working on your own, when you're outside of school, I think one of the biggest challenges is, well, how do you know how to goal set and how do you know like 
great, well, what is the metric that I'm going to measure myself on week over week in terms of performance, especially when you're not a consumer app that's launched to the public? We, I think, really, we benefited from that structure. We benefited from someone being there to tell us, no, you need to accomplish these things in a week, not a month, and just really pushed ourselves to go make those things happen. Now, I'm curious, from all the experiences you've had, if there are other aspiring founders out there, is there some advice you might have of, of things for them to pay attention to, especially in the early stages of trying to build a new business? Yeah, definitely. I think the most important thing is giving yourself enough shots on goal. And I think what that means is that oftentimes folks will, will raise, you know, a couple million dollars or a couple hundred thousand dollars, and then that money will burn quick. And then you're left with, it's the number one reason for companies dying is either the co-founder is splitting or the company is running out of money. And what we try to do is give ourselves enough iterations and enough shots on goal to really figure this thing out. And so iterate really, really fast. Like time is the most valuable resource where we tried to push ourselves to an experiment or something, the risk that we were trying to mitigate that might take a month, we really were trying to do it in a couple of days so that we could quickly learn and then pivot and like change direction as needed from there. And like when we started, we really didn't know how to build a business. We had some sense of how to build a technology, but I think we just gave ourselves enough time where we learned the other pieces. And so that was super important. The, the other advice that I'd give is focus on problems that you have a sense for what like that end solution and that end workflow looks like. For us, it was so clear because we knew, okay, if we make this into a finger prick, it's going to improve the lives of these patients and these patients. We now just need to go build it and get it cleared by the FDA. And obviously, the commercialization was a lot more complex than we were originally thinking. It was like everything is more complex than you originally estimate. But we were able to sprint at one core goal for the for those initial year and that initial year and a half phase. And I'd highly recommend that, which is find a simple goal to really just go after and then go sprint at it. And I think focus is one of the most valuable resources a startup has. Unlike a big company, you only really have to do one thing well, and then everything else will fall in place. And then you grow from there. So th those are some of the things I think we, we learned along the road. I like these lessons. And another thing I'm curious about is it seems like one thing you've alluded to is that you've built up a, a great network of other founders and you can exchange ideas and, and lessons as, as you go along. What do you think today would be the best way to, to build out such a network if you're just getting started? Or maybe even imagine you're not at Stanford. <laughs> Stanford, of course, is a lot of such activity, but what if you're somewhere else? I think one of the, the best ways to, to do that is just build stuff, ship some code, and then see if it's some like contributing to open source projects is a huge way to do it. The other way is like create a quick MVP and some project that you're working on, try to get friends to use it and eventually somehow finds its way to interesting people. I'd also say that there's like, like Y Combinator truly is like at this point of time, I think the batch sizes are like 200 companies and things like that. And so it's obviously really hard to get into, but it's, we applied to Y Combinator, I think like three times. It's one of those things that really changed the trajectory of the company and introduced us to this broader network. I would highly recommend that it, it's a great, for first time founders is a great place to quickly supercharge your network. And, and it's something that we really care about in terms of like, when we think about the new companies that are starting now, we try to give back to that Y Combinator network. Both Deepka and I will try to spend time with YC founders and just talk them through some of the, the early issues that we had. I think those are some of the easiest ways to build a network is uh, contribute to some open source community, build early versions of your project and get it out to people that try to get them to use it or at least criticize it. And then like find communities like Y Combinator that I think are, are strong and, and the broader YC community as well. They have like startup school 
school. And I know they host a lot of events and conferences, both virtual and in-person that, that are really high leverage. Well, thanks for sharing that today. Now, I'd like to go back a little bit to your bigger vision, which, I mean, ultimately, I imagine is part of why you're able to execute what you're doing. You have to pitch a big vision to your potential funders, where this can all go, how impactful this can all be. And so I'm curious, when you look, let's say five, 10 years into the future, what do you think Athelas could be? There is going to be a care delivery platform in the home. And what that means is that the all of us healthy, chronically ill, etc. There's going to be devices and sensors and software that we need to transition healthcare into the home. And I think that there is a massive business to be built doing that and in parallel, really reducing the costs of healthcare in the country. And so I think what Athelos looks like in five years, if things go well, is that we have a suite of blood tests, we have a suite of sensors, some of the things that I already mentioned around other types of physiological monitoring. And we've successfully paired that with physicians and successfully paired that with in-home medication delivery and a fleet of nurses. I mean, already we have a team of 30 nurses who are responsible for, you know, checking in on the results of patients and coordinating between their doctors and working with their caregivers. And we're able to bill for some of those services via insurance or work with a you know physician to bill for those services under insurance. I really think that what the end state looks like for us is we have this incredible package of technology products that chronically ill patients, healthy patients can use in the home to passively monitor their health. And we can flag issues before they become severe disease. We can help chronically ill patients manage that severe disease and then avoid hospitalizations and ER visits, which are really what cause all the dollars to be spent in American healthcare today. And I do think that by making, like I mentioned at the beginning, like healthcare is one of those industries that's just this massive suck of wealth in the, in the country. And if we fixed it, it would significantly propel the middle class in in a direction that i mean again would, would make them live like like royalty and so for me i think that's what we're building towards is how can we make it so that you can get world-class healthcare, like you know stanford healthcare level healthcare in your home 24 7 on demand when you want that blood test you get it when you want a quick consultation you get it when your blood pressure is off some sensor is picked up on that and flags it as this patient is at risk for developing hypertension or developing, you know, congestive heart failure. And then again, take, help making it so that people can live longer, healthier lives while simultaneously putting wealth back into the American economy. So that's the sort of grand vision. And I think there's a lot of steps to get there. And in the process, just a massive company to build in doing so. so yeah. Well, I hope that succeeds. That would be great. I'm kind of curious at the individual level, let's say just as an individual at home and you think about preventative health care, right? Are there some diseases that come to your mind where today they're just typically detected too late and it would be so much better if we had early detection? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a whole range of them. I think there's both disease itself and then there's also the acute events that, you know, lead to hospitalizations for patients that may already have disease. And so on the front of those acute events, I think in cancer populations, ER and hospital utilization is way too high. We, and, and it's because often we'll, a patient will become neutropenic or be at risk of catching an infection and just won't know. And so step one, I think, is making it so that we never miss a neutropenic event ever again. And the way you do that is, is you get these sensors into the homes of cancer patients. Similarly, there's really simple diseases as well. 
You look at congestive heart failure, you look at long-term chronic hypertension and what the types of things that occur with heart disease and risk for cardiac arrest. One of the biggest killers in the country, one of the biggest, again, drains economically on the healthcare system. It's so simple to detect, just tracking weight day over day, tracking blood pressure. It's so, so, so simple. And the technology infrastructure doesn't yet exist in order to passively monitor that and pair it with good insights from a physician or from a nurse. And so that's something that we're working on as well, where you have thousands of blood pressure monitors and weighing scales that, that, that we ship every month and get into the homes of patients and they're LTE connected and show up on a clean dashboard for the doctor. I think that some of the other disease states are at a detection stage, leukemia, you know, the, the proliferation of white blood cells and blast cells, it happens, but it can definitely be spotted earlier and earlier. The post-operative setting where a patient might develop sepsis, like a severe infection, and doesn't know about it, again, is something where if you sent them home with an Athelis device, you could get a frequent platelet white blood cell hemoglobin count again and again and again, and then spot that spike or spot that trend, and then avoid it from turning into a hospital visit or into death in a lot of cases with sepsis. So those are some of the areas, and I think the low-hanging fruit. And long-term, I think there's so much signal in our blood, and there's so much signal in our physiological parameters that realistically, we should be able to spot a whole host of diseases earlier, everything from breast cancer to the risk for, for developing an autoimmune disease. These are things that physiologically will appear. We're just not measuring that signal and no one is training models on that signal. No one is actually trying to do interesting things with that signal uh, to intervene earlier. And so I would say almost all disease at this point of time should be and could be detected earlier with technology that we already have. Well, that's an exciting future ahead, Danae. Thanks for working on it. Alternate, thanks for sharing. This is really interesting to, to learn more about how you look at the world and who you are aside from work. Really appreciate it. And, and thanks for the great conversation. I actually learned so much and I'm, I'm really inspired by your vision for the healthcare system of the future, which can be so much more preventative than what we have today and so much cheaper than what we have today. It's going to be amazing. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This was a ton of fun. <laughs>